Welcome to Defenders, the teaching class of Dr. William Lane Craig. Today, an excursus on natural theology, part 32. For more resources from Dr. Craig, go to reasonablefaith.org. We've been talking about the logical version of the problem of evil, and I explained last time that the burden of proof that it lays upon the atheist's shoulders is simply too heavy to be sustained, and that this fact is now widely recognized by both atheist and theist philosophers alike. Uh, and therefore, this is not really an issue of hot debate anymore. Those, of, uh, those people who say that philosophy never makes any progress um, can be refuted by simply pointing to this problem. For hundreds of years, from the time of Epicurus, uh, hundreds of years before Christ, until the 1970s, the logical version of the problem of evil was the standard statement of this problem and objection. And now uh, it has been um, widely recognized that this problem, in fact, is bankrupt, that it's been resolved, that, in fact, no one is able to show that the coexistence of God and the suffering and evil in the world are logically incompatible with each other. But that then throws us on to the probabilistic or the evidential problem of evil, which does remain very much a matter of debate among philosophers today. And this is a much more powerful version of the problem, since its conclusion is more modest, namely it's improbable that God exists, the burden of proof that it lays on the atheist is much lighter, uh, and therefore um, can be said to be an easier argument to sustain. So how might we respond to the atheist claim that the evil and the suffering in the world makes it improbable that God exists. Well, I want to make three points by way of response to this argument. First, we're not in a good position to say that it's improbable that God has good reasons for permitting the suffering in the world. We're not in a good position to be able to say that it's improbable that God has good reasons for permitting the suffering in the world. The key to the evidential problem is the atheist claim that God probably doesn't have good reasons for permitting the evil and suffering in the world. Now, we all recognize that much of the suffering in the world looks unjustified. We see neither its point nor its necessity. And so the success of the atheist's argument is going to depend on whether or not we're warranted in inferring that because the suffering looks unjustified, it really is unjustified. The atheist's argument depends upon that critical inference from appearance to reality. Because the suffering appears to be unjustified or pointless, it really is. And the first point that I want to make in response is that we're just not in a good position to make that kind of a judgment with any sort of confidence. You see, as finite persons, we are limited in time and space, 
as well as intelligence and insight. But the sovereign God sees the end of history from its beginning and providentially orders history so that his ends are achieved through people's free decisions and actions. And in order to achieve his ultimate ends, God may well have to allow a good deal of suffering along the way. Suffering, which appears to be pointless to us within our limited frame of reference, may be seen to be justly permitted within God's wider frame of reference. Let me give two illustrations of this point, one from contemporary science and one from popular culture. The first illustration, in so-called chaos theory, a field of uh, modern science, it has been shown that certain large-scale systems like the weather or insect populations are extraordinarily sensitive to the smallest disturbances. A butterfly fluttering his wings on a twig in the jungles of West Africa can set in motion forces that will eventually cause a hurricane over the Atlantic Ocean. And yet no one watching that little butterfly fluttering on that branch could possibly, even in principle, predict such an outcome. We have no way of knowing how seemingly insignificant uh, and trivial alterations uh, can radically affect the course of world history. Second illustration from popular culture. In the movie Sliding Doors, starring uh, Gwyneth Paltrow, the movie tells the story of a young woman who is rushing down the stairs of a uh, train station to catch a subway. And as she nears the train, the movie splits into two paths that her life might take. In the one life, the doors to the train slide shut just before she can board. And so she's prevented from catching her train. In the other pathway, she makes it through the sliding doors just before they close. And based upon this seemingly trivial event, the two paths of her life increasingly diverge as time goes on. In the one pathway of life, she's enormously successful, prosperous, and happy. In the other life, she encounters failure, misery, and unhappiness. And it's all because of that split-second difference in getting through those sliding subway doors. Moreover, that difference is due to whether or not a little girl playing with her dolly on the stair railing is snatched away by her father or momentarily blocks the young woman's path as she is rushing down the stairs to catch the train. And when you see this, you just can't help but wonder about what other seemingly innumerable trivialities led up to that event. 
For example, whether the father and the daughter were delayed in leaving the house that morning because the little girl didn't like the cereal that her mother gave her for breakfast, or whether the father was inattentive to his daughter because of something that he had read in that day's newspaper that uh, disturbed him, and so his thoughts were not on his daughter, and so on and so forth. The most interesting part of this film, however, is the ending. In the happy, successful life, the young woman is suddenly killed in an accident. While in the other miserable life, her life turns around and the life of hardship and suffering turns out in the end to be the truly good life after all. Now, my point is obviously not that everything will turn out for the best in this life. Uh, no, I'm making a much more modest point. Simply that given the dizzying complexity of life, we are simply in no position to judge with any sort of confidence that God has no good reason for permitting some instance of suffering to afflict our lives. Every event that occurs sends a ripple effect through history such that God's reason for permitting it might not emerge until centuries from now maybe in another country. Only an all-knowing God could grasp the complexities of directing a world of free people toward his previsioned ends. Just think of the innumerable, incalculable events that would be involved in arriving at a single historical event. For example, the Allied victory on D-Day. Think of the infinite complexity that would lie behind arriving at that single event. We have no idea of what suffering might be involved in order for God to achieve some intended purpose through the freely chosen actions of human persons. Nor should we expect to discern God's reasons for permitting suffering. So it's hardly surprising that much of the suffering and evil in the world should appear pointless and unnecessary to us because we are simply overwhelmed by this kind of complexity. Now, I want to emphasize this is not to appeal to mystery or to divine psychology, but rather it is to point to our inherent limitations which make it impossible for us to say when confronted with some example of suffering that God probably doesn't have a good reason for permitting that event to occur. And unbelievers themselves recognize these kinds of limitations in other contexts. For example, one of the uh, decisive objections to utilitarianism which is the ethical theory that says that we should do that action which is likely to bring about the greatest good for the greatest number of people. One of the decisive objections to utilitarianism is that we have no idea of the ultimate outcome of our actions. Some short-term good might lead in the long run to untold misery 
while some action that looks disastrous in the short term may turn out to bring about the greatest good for humanity. We don't have a clue given our cognitive limitations. And so this defect of utilitarianism, as you can see, has absolutely nothing to do with uh, divine mystery or divine psychology or something of that sort. It has to do with the inherent cognitive limitations that we as finite observers undergo. So once we contemplate God's providence over the whole of human history, I hope you can see how hopeless it is for finite limited observers to speculate about the probability of whether God has a good reason for the suffering that we observe. We're simply not in a position to assess those kind of probabilities with any sort of confidence. So that's the first response to the probabilistic version of the problem of evil. Any discussion or questions about that? Yes, Eric. Um, what would you say to um, the argument that Hugh Rawls puts forward that a lot of what's seen as natural evil in the world is the result of physical processes that are necessary to support life, like earthquakes being caused by plate tectonics, which are required for life. And so, um, and a lot of times it's our own human choices, like the decision to build a home in a fault line right. that puts us in trouble and not some unavoidable problem from, you know, decree from above. I think those are helpful um, explanations. Um, it is very true that the degree to which human moral choices are intertwined with natural evil and suffering is just uh, inextricable. They are, they are very much bound up. As you say, uh, very often the reason people could suffer from natural disasters is because of free choices that folks make. What I want to say, however, is that these natural disasters that are due from things like a universe operating according to natural law, which makes rational decision-making possible, um, form the arena or the context in which the drama of God's plan of salvation is being played out. That God's ultimate purposes for human beings are going to be achieved by placing them in an arena like this uh, and so these natural evils that occur um, ultimately serve as the context in which these free moral choices are made. And so you cannot say that they're irrelevant to free choices or could just be removed because we're not in a position to know what would happen. For example, if a tsunami had not occurred or if an earthquake had not occurred. So my point is the more general point that I think would encompass the insight that you mentioned. One of the ways that's helped me think about the issue of probability and the amount of evil and suffering in the world uh, comes down to almost using like a popular idea like sliding doors. But uh -huh. in many popular stories and um, epics, you have the character of the wise old sage or the you know, wise person who's teaching a mentor. And what will happen often is he'll do something that the one who's being trained is like, what is, yeah. what is this person doing? Why are they? And it seems pointless. And of course, a cheesy example is the karate kid where he's telling him to wax on, wash up, wax off the car. And he's like, I want you to teach me karate, but you're <laughs> teaching me how to wax your car. But secretly he was doing that. And so even though it looks 
pointless. It actually yeah. turned it out to turn around for something that he didn't realize what was happening. Right. And that's the way I kind that's, of... That's helpful. It. That's another good popular illustration. I think you'll find a lot of these in literature or movies if you begin to look for them. And again, it's, it's all calling into question this inference from appearance to reality. That's a key inference in the evidential version of the problem of evil because it looks pointless, it is pointless. And that is, I think, something that you're simply not in a position to say. Yes. So, Dr. Craig, you've covered a situation where uh, a chance happened and that caused certain evil. Uh, you know, uh, you gave an example of the sliding doors and so on. But there seems to be uh, areas where it's almost evil by design. So, so uh, an example being a wasp laying an egg inside a spider, yeah. and 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 uh, so. And that doesn't come, uh, that's not by chance. It seems to be a design behind the evil. Is it, what is your uh, uh, take on um, uh, uh, Satan influencing? Uh, oh. influencing oh, my goodness. Yeah. I, I mean, here there's so much more that could be said in terms of uh, satanic or demonic influence. Or this gets into evolutionary theory as well. Right. Uh, an evolutionary biologist like Francisco Ayala appeals to these sorts of horrible designs in nature to appeal to evolution. He says evolution is the best explanation. These weren't designed. These evolved by chance among these insects. Um, and therefore, God can't be blamed. God had reasons for setting up this sort of evolutionary process. But he disagrees with the creationists that every single instance like this is designed. The other thing that uh, um, could be raised is to what degree animals suffer. I think that the evidence would be that insects and these lower forms of life where most of these horrors are to be found are like little machines. They're not even sentient. Sure. Now, when you get to the level of, say, mammals like cats and dogs, they're clearly, these are sentient beings who experience pain mm -hmm. uh, and other sensations. But when you're talking about spiders and ants and wasps, uh, I, d I don't think there's any evidence whatsoever that these are sentient beings that have states of pain awareness. What they have are nervous systems that are complicated enough to react to, to noxious stimuli. Mm -hmm. So for example, if you poke an amoeba with a needle, it will recoil as though it were in pain, right. but in fact it, it's not a sentient being. And that would greatly diminish, I think, these difficulties because there really isn't any suffering uh, with respect to such creatures. And even when you get to the sentient animals, um, as Michael Murray has emphasized in his book, Nature, Red in Tooth and Claw, mm -hmm. an excellent book if you're troubled by animal suffering, Murray points out that even though many animals are sentient and they have states of pain awareness, they don't have a sort of third level awareness of a first person perspective on their pain awareness. So as to say, I am myself in pain because animals are not persons they can be in pain without being aware that they are in pain. Yeah. Um, they would be like a, a strange phenomenon that is an exhibit among human beings called blind sight, 
where people are to all intents and purposes blind. They, they have no visual experience. They can't see anything. But in fact, they really can see. And if you toss a ball to one of these persons, he'll catch the ball. Mm -hmm. If you say, come here, he won't run into the table. He'll walk around it. They actually can see, but they are not aware that they can see. Yes. They don't have that third level awareness of their second level ability. And animals that don't have this third level awareness would be like that. They can be in pain, but not be aware that they are in pain. And that's a tremendous comfort, I think, to pet owners and animal lovers who are troubled by animal suffering and pain. I was talking to a biologist, Jeff Schloss, about this some months ago. And he said, for the most part, animals lead very pleasant lives that end rather quickly through predation mm -hmm. uh, and that really don't experience great deal of suffering because they're not even aware that they are so in I, pain. I think that would reduce uh, the amount of suffering. Right. Uh, but there, um, uh, and there is some argument uh, that uh, perhaps your more advanced apes, uh, uh, an example yes. being Coco, right. grieving over the little kitten right. when uh, you get on, to on YouTube and so on. The higher primates. Right. Um, uh, but there does seem to be uh, almost. E uh, the best way I can describe it is is evil by design. Um, you you look at the you look at uh, viruses and the the complexity and yeah. elegance of, of of viruses and the and the destructive. But Mark, power. why why would you call that evil? I mean, that was the point of my first um, my f first response was okay. if these are really like little machines, right? Viruses and things. There's nothing evil about that any more than a machine rusting in the rain. Uh, uh, except that they cause people uh, uh, distinct uh, difficulties. All right. All right. Now, there, there you're talking then about human suffering. Yes, yes. And this will then be my first point that I've just made, is that we're not in a position to say that um, the suffering in the world is not justly permitted by God. Yes, that okay. God has placed us a in an arena right. in which there are viruses and bacteria and people die of leukemia and other sorts of diseases. <coughs> and when that happens, we're not in a position to say with any kind of confidence, God doesn't have a good reason for yes, allowing no, I, this I to agree happen. With that. I agree with that. So yeah. I would subsume this under this general first point Though one could say a lot more about it, as I just did. Sure. Thank you. Bruce? Uh, in regards to this, this issue that was just raised, uh, I think we a lot of times underestimate uh, the effect of the fall on creation and, and on, on living things and on the, on the planet. And, you know, changes in, in, in living things are non-random. So the, the environment unlocks a, a genetic package so you could have because of the fall you could have different packages uh, that affect themselves in different living things that were not intended to operate yeah. that way before the fall yeah my difficulty with that response which is a one option and michael murray in his book has a chapter devoted to that response is that it seems to presuppose young earth creationism and um, that hardly seems a persuasive response to the problem of natural evil, because you're taking on the view there that 
there was no suffering and pain in the world prior to the fall of Adam, there, no animal suffering. Uh, in fact, that the world was created only a few thousand years ago in six literal 24-hour days. And that hardly seems to be a very persuasive answer to this problem. Now, you could still, though, perhaps appropriate what you want to say. William Dembski, who is not a young earth creationist, has said that perhaps the Garden of Eden in which the original human pair was created was a sort of oasis, a sort of pristine shelter in a wider world of animal predation and suffering and earthquakes and things of that sort, but that God had created it, had put them in such a world, knowing that they would fall, and that it is within such a fallen world that the human drama of salvation is best played out, which fits right into what I'm talking about. So that's a very interesting solution that presupposes middle knowledge. Uh, namely, God in creating humanity knew that they would fall and so had them created in a world that bears the fallenness, a kind of fallen creation, knowing that in such a world of pain and suffering, the human uh, plan of salvation would best be worked out. So I think that you can appropriate that insight without committing to young earth creationism. I tend to be relatively young earth, but I don't, yeah. I don't see where it, 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 it's tied to a, a timeline, though, uh, that well, uh, to age. I don't, okay, yeah. good. Well, then I, I think that's what Dembski wants to try to do, is to appropriate the insight, but without the timeline. Okay, anyone else on this first point? Yes, Marcus. Uh, I like this point a lot, and... I think it also goes along with the movie series Back to the Future, had a very similar timeline, time plot. Now, um, taking the question another way, I'm not the only person in this class who's M had... Maybe before you yeah. go on, could you explain to everyone what you were referring to in the Back to the Future? Sure, Back so. to the Future. So let's go back to 1980, and it's already been as long as that movie was done as the time it pictured, which was 1950. Um, but the idea was they built a time machine out of a DeLorean, and they went back in time. Uh, and you remember the amount of power was 1.21 gigawatts to be able to uh, have uh, to be able to leap through time, and uh, went through a series of. It, I would call it a science fiction, but I also also call it a comedy. A lot of funny yeah. things happen along the way, and uh, people make choices. And then when they go through time, different situations. Uh, represent uh, themselves so that, you know, when they come back, things are slightly different than when they left based on what they did in the past. And those things were very trivial at the time, right? Like they were trivial at the time. Socking Biff in the nose when he comes to the car or, or managing to plug in the, the wire. Yeah, so, you know, I've been a Michael J. Fox fan, so, uh, you know, I'm... Uh, love the movies. Yeah, these time travel scenarios really illustrate this point well, I think. Okay, go ahead. Yeah. So, so now taking the other side, and, uh, um, you know, I was going to go that, you know, I'm not the only person in this class who's had periods of suffering, asked, you know, maybe other people to pray, you know, has some, some other things happen. So taking the opposite position, you know, what should we say, do you think generally, you know, some Christians are very sure, they're very sure they can explain their suffering, they're very sure 
they could, for example, explain the ins and outs of the Orlando tragedy. Yeah. Um, you know, to what extent, you know, what kind of cautions do you think we should have? Well, going the, the other, thing on that the other I like side. about this point, Marcus, is that it doesn't offer any explanation for why these things occur. In fact, what it says is you're not in a good position to know why they occurred. Uh, so someone who presumes to say this is why the Orlando shooting occurred is, is being extremely presumptuous. Yeah. My point is that we're not in a good position to make those kind of judgments. So that's the wisdom of the book of Job. God never tells Job why he's suffering. He just says to Job, who are you to answer back to me, the almighty and provident God? I'm working things out. Your duty is not to figure out why this is happening, but to trust me as you go through it. And I didn't used to like the book of Job as a young Christian because he never gets any answers. But I think I've come to see the wisdom of it, that as we go through these things, we shouldn't try to figure out why they happen. We're not in a position to know that. Rather, what we do is pray for strength and stamina to get through them and for our faith not to fail as we as we do. James. Well, on that point, I, I wanted to... Uh, uh, point out something in Luke chapter 13, which is, uh, it's, uh, it's the only, it's the only place in the gospels where this appears, but it's, it's where G- Jesus, um, is asked about, about a question about evil. Yes. Um, now on the same occasion, there were some present who reported to him about the Galileans whose Pilate mixed with their sacrifices. And Jesus said to them, do you suppose that these Galileans were greater sinners than the other Galileans because they suffered this fate? I'll tell you no, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or do you suppose that those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them were worse culprits than all the men who live in Jerusalem? I'll tell you no, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Doesn't that almost seem callous and uh, almost even rude? Uh, but um, uh, he, doesn't, he doesn't give an answer. I mean, no. you've, got, you've got both evils there. You've got moral evil. Then you got natural evil. You do. Okay, do you see James' point? You got the moral evil. Pilate had killed these Jews by the sword, right? But then you also have this accident where the Tower of Siloam fell on these people and killed them. So here Jesus is being asked about moral evil and natural evil. Okay, go ahead. Well, no, that's the, that's the whole thing. Is it's um, well, well, one point is first off, you know, but and and if you want to read this chapter in context, also he's talking about the need to. You know, to repent also. Yes, right. But but, but he says uh, he says you know no the people that were killed by Pilate weren't weren't greater sinners than anybody else and right. then he says the same thing also about those that fall on the towel. Well, I mean I think the bottom line is though is that um, I mean I mean we're all subjects of God and he can he can do what he wants and and it's not that he's 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 picking on somebody necessarily it's just that right right, so, I, right. I love this response of Jesus. This is where he's actually posed a philosophical question about evil. And what is he refuting there? He's refuting the view that people suffer because they deserve to. Mm -hmm. That they committed some sin, that they are somehow outside of the will of God, and that's why these bad things are happening to them. And that is a corrective that needs to be issued again and again, because Christians will very often think that when somebody is suffering for some pointless reason, 
that they think, well, there's some secret sin in his life, uh, or he's under God's judgment. Um, and, and Jesus repudiates that. He says, they're no worse than you are, and you need to also repent uh, so as not to be judged by God. So this is a, a really good um, admonition, I think, not to be judgmental when innocent suffering takes place. Taiwan? Yes, um, I also like to bring a scripture verse from Matthew 13, 33, saying that the kingdom of heaven is like unto leaven, which woman took and hid in three measure of meal until uh. the whole was leavened. And so it's almost like God created the world and set in motion to arrive at kingdom of heaven. Right. But a lot of times... We are the dysfunctional East. <laughs> we can realize this wonderful purpose. So we trump that with our self-will or our own agenda, or we just kind of indifference about a heroine in this purpose. And so it's almost like uh, if the east doesn't work, the dough doesn't rise, the kingdom of heaven doesn't arrive. And so it's more like, and all the breakthrough in science are God's inspiration. Mm -hmm. And God wanted to give us that kind of communication as long as we are connected with him. Yeah. And so due to lack of interest of connecting with God and wanting to uh, realize his purpose and all that, and that makes this dough doesn't rise to the kingdom of heaven. So it's more like a sin of motivation. Yeah, I, I think that you're making some good points. And to draw that in contact with what I've just said, the leaven here is described as very insignificant and tiny. She just introduces a little leaven, but then in time it leavens the whole lump. Uh, and so the kingdom of God is going to work itself out in human history. And we'll see uh, next time how in fact that really has happened. Um, and emphasizes or underscores the point that what in our limited perspective and lifetime may appear trivial or inconsequential, may in the long run turn out to be hugely significant. Um, and that uh, underlines the point here that we're not cognitively situated in such a way as to make the kind of probability judgments that the atheist wants to make. Let's go on to point two. And that is, relative to the full scope of the evidence, God's existence is probable. Relative to the full scope of the evidence, God's existence is probable. And the key to understanding the second point is that probabilities are always relative to some background information. Probabilities are not absolute. It is always probable with respect to some background information. So, for example, suppose we're given the information that Joe is a college student and that 90% of college students drink beer. Now, relative to that information, it makes it highly probable that Joe is a beer drinker. But suppose now we're given the additional information that Joe is a Wheaton College student, and that 90% of Wheaton College students do not drink beer. 
relative to this new set of information, it now becomes highly improbable that Joe is a beer drinker. So probabilities, to repeat, are relative to background information. So when the atheist says God's existence is improbable, your antennae should immediately go up and you should say improbable relative to what? What is the background information? Is it the suffering in the world? Well, if that's all you take as your background information, it's no wonder that God's existence would look improbable relative to that alone. Though, as I've argued in point one, appearances can be deceiving. But the probability of God's existence relative to the suffering in the world alone, taken in isolation, isn't really an interesting question, is it? The the really interesting question is, uh, how probable is God's existence relative to the full scope of the evidence? And I'm persuaded that when you consider the full scope of the evidence, then God's existence is quite probable, even given any improbability that evil might be thought to throw upon God's existence. That is to say, any improbability of God's existence relative to evil alone is simply outbalanced by the evidence for the existence of God, evidence that we've discussed in this class. Consider in particular the moral argument for God's existence. A lot of the suffering in the world is the result of uh, human choices, moral choices. So much of the evil in the world, as we've said, is moral evil. But then you can present a moral argument that goes like this. If God does not exist, then objective moral values do not exist. Number two, evil exists. Three, therefore, objective moral values exist. Namely, some things are evil. Therefore, number four, God exists. So, paradoxically, at a superficial level, although evil would seem to call into question God's existence, at a deeper, more fundamental level, evil actually proves God's existence. Because apart from God, the suffering in the world isn't really bad. Uh, So if the atheist thinks that suffering is bad or that suffering ought not to exist, then he's making moral judgments that are possible only if God exists. So again, that argument would go like this. If God does not exist, objective moral values do not exist. Two, evil exists. That's the atheist's claim. Three, therefore, objective moral values do exist. Um, for therefore God exists. So what you need to understand with respect to the evidential version of the problem of evil is that most of the people who write on the evidential version of the problem of evil are simply assuming tacitly that there is no evidence on the other side of the scale. Um, For them, the only question is whether or not God's existence is improbable relative to the evil and suffering in the world because they just assume there's nothing on the other side of the scale to outbalance it. But I think that there are very weighty arguments on the other side of the scale for God's existence, including the argument from evil itself. 
And so I could actually concede that God's existence is improbable relative to the evil in the world alone, taken in isolation, but maintain that this is just outweighed by the arguments for God's existence. Any response or question about that second point? Yes, George. Bill, your friend Richard Dawkins says that he does not know that God is absent, but he thinks it's very improbable that God exists, and he bases his life on that um, conclusion. So here's my question. Even if one thought that the probabilistic argument reached the conclusion that proponents urge, let's say that the chances are less than 40% that God exists, even taking into account all the background evidence, would one still be justified in believing in an all-knowing, all-powerful, all-good God based on Pascal's wager? Ah, okay. <laughs> That's a big question to open up in the last minute. <laughs> uh, you can save it. Yeah. What George is asking is about sort of gambling on God's existence. Um, given that the rewards of believing in God, if God does exist, are so great. And the disadvantages of believing in God, if he does not exist, are so minimal. The idea is that you ought to go ahead and believe in God's existence anyway, because there's so much at stake. And I think if you can whittle the, um, the alternatives down to just say Christianity versus atheism, I do think Pascal's argument does provide justification for belief in God. Uh, but usually it's thought that the alternatives are equiprobable. Um, whether or not that would still be justified in gambling on God if the odds are against God, I'm, I'm not sure what to say in that case, because I, I, I don't think that they are against God. I think they're at least even. And in that case, I think Pascal's argument is a good one. All right, well, what we'll do next time then is look at the third point um, where I'm going to argue that uh, the existence of the Christian God in particular is not really very improbable given the evil and suffering in the world. That is to say, if the Christian God exists, it's not really surprising that there would be a lot of moral and natural evil in the world. And therefore, that evil doesn't really render the existence of the Christian God that improbable. Well, let's end with a benediction, shall we? And now may the God of providence and sovereignty who orders the world from the beginning to his purposes and his ends, give you faith and confidence to endure whatever seemingly pointless and um, unnecessary evils may afflict your life. May you be strengthened by his Holy Spirit to bear suffering in faith and in courage until we go to see him face to face. Amen. The copyright for the content of this recording is held by Dr. William Lane Craig. For more, go to reasonablefaith.org.